0: Lord, that is our heart, that our lives would just be a blessing to you. Lord, may, it, may our lives, the way that we live every single day, be an outpouring of your love for us, your Holy Spirit in us, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit as we love those around us, Lord. So, Father, I pray as we go to the Word right now that you would be our teacher. Just prepare every single heart that's here. We thank you for your Word, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that no one's here by chance tonight. You brought us all here by divine appointment. May we walk out of this place closer to you than the way we came. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. And again, if anybody else needs a Bible, raise your hand. We'd be happy to loan you one. And if you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 23. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. There we go. Alright, well I know we got a lot of people out sick, so let's be praying for one another, and there's several people that are out sick, and I understand that somebody's in the hospital having a baby right now too, so we'll be praying for the witties, okay, so praise the Lord for that. Alright, Numbers 23, and I titled the message, if you're a note taker tonight, uh, God's Supernatural Protection. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I really want to take a few moments, maybe even a little longer than I normally do, because I really want to give us the context, we need to understand what's going on in this chapter so we have a better just understanding of of how it relates to us and just God's perfect plan in this chapter after 39 plus years of marching through the wilderness the children of Israel have finally come to the place where they're going to enter into the land of promise we saw in numbers 14 through 20 nearly 20 year or nearly excuse me 40 years of the of unfruitfulness now remember why did that happen it happened because of their rebellion against God You want to live a fruitless life, rebel against God. You want to live a life that's going to have little impact on eternity, then you do your own thing and go your own will and go your own way, and you'll be right there with the children of Israel who turned an 11-day trek into a 40-year death march. And it happened because they simply chose to go their own way. They simply chose to turn away from God. And the rebellion began by simply God's calling them into that land of promise. But before they got there, if you remember, it started in chapter 16. With Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These were the three guys who were supposed to be holding up Moses' hands. They're supposed to be an encouragement to him. And what did they do? They looked at Moses and said, who do you think you are to tell us how to run our lives? You know, there's a bumper sticker that's all over Santa Cruz that says, question authority. Romans 13 says, submit to authority. Amen? So we're to submit to those that God has placed in authority over us. And these guys didn't get it. They would have loved that bumper sticker. And they questioned authority, and they got 250 mighty men to come along with them. And what did God do, remember? What happened? The ground opened up and swallowed them. God made it pretty clear how He felt about that program, right? If God has called someone and anointed someone, we're to submit to them. Again, as unto the Lord. And again, even in our own homes, husbands and wives. And remember, as they were charged, that Moses fell on his face and interceded on their behalf. But then as we continue on, we saw that God sent a plague upon the people as well. Because the people were in rebellion against God. And when we're in rebellion against God, God loves us enough to bring whatever it takes to bring us back into right fellowship before Him. He's a God of love and grace and mercy, but He's also a God of judgment. And if you remember what happened, 14,700 people died. This plague started killing them as they stood. And Moses went in, or Aaron went in and stood in between them. And where he stood, the death stopped. He made sacrifice and when he stood in the midst of them, people stopped dying. And that's exactly a picture of Jesus Christ, that we are all under the plague of sin, and where Jesus stepped in, people stopped dying. We would simply uh, repent of our sin. We then saw Aaron's bud that rotted, or his rod that budded. His bud that rotted. His rod that budded. Again, a picture again that it's Aaron was the one that God had called. Again, people want to look and esteem somebody else and and they want to look for a new leader. And we're going to see again how Israel continually blew it because of that. In chapter 19, we got to the sacrifice of the red heifer. I encourage you to get the tape because there's very few, I mean, the the Old Testament's filled with it, but what a great picture of Jesus, the, the sacrifice of the red heifer is. It's just Jesus all the way through. I encourage you to get the tape. Chapter 20, we saw Moses finally blew it. He's got three million murmurers he's dragging through the wilderness. These guys are whining and moaning and complaining every time they get a chance. And Moses, instead of rebuking them, often would pray for them. But finally this time, Moses has had enough. Because they're crying out for water, and what does he do? He takes the rod, and what does he do? He smotes what? The The rock. And he hits it twice. And he'd already been told, earlier he had smote the rock, and water had come out. And now he'd been told to speak to the rock. The rock is a picture of? Jesus Christ. And so when he smote the rock, it was, it was and again, a picture of him putting Christ back up on the cross again. And because he displayed anger before the people and made it look like God was angry with them, God said, Moses, you're not going to enter into the land of promise. We then moved on to, to chapter 21. This was just a few weeks ago. and we got to chapter 21, we looked at the picture of victorious Christian living. Again, I encourage you to get the tape, but one of the things I really loved about chapter 21 was we saw this new generation was now left. Miriam had died. Aaron had died. Moses was one of the few that was left. They knew he was not going to enter into the land of promise. The new generation is there, and they come back to the very spot where 40 years earlier they denied the Lord. The very same enemy was right before them. And the same is true for us, guys. If we don't face the enemies and the struggles of life, we're just going to be roaming around right back in that same spot over and over and over again. And they came right back and they fought the Canaanites, but this time they trusted God. And because they trusted God, they were victorious over the Canaanites facing that old enemy. You notice they didn't go to any counseling sessions to get past it, right? Amen? They didn't run off to the counselor and, you know, go through, deal with the baggage in their past or anything else. What they did is they put their faith in God and trusted in Him and they moved onward. in that upward calling in Christ Jesus, which is what we would call it today, but they trusted God and they went forward. But right after that, remember, they got this great victory. And this Can I encourage you with something? Be careful of this. A great victory, doing great in your walk with the Lord and the enemy's right there. And what happened was immediately they began to murmur about the water and the food again. And God sent what into the camp? Fiery what? Serpents. And the serpents began to bite them. And when they were bit by the serpent, they would die. It was a death sentence. But then God told them to take a bronze staff... And to put on that staff a bronze serpent. And as long as they held that, when they held that staff up, anybody who was bit was to look to the serpent and they would live. And again, that seems really bizarre as we've talked about that. The serpent, because the serpent's a picture of Satan or of sin. And they were looking at the serpent, the representation of sin, to be healed. But we know the reason for that is that later, it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And it was a picture of Jesus being lifted up upon the cross. And that all who've been bit by the, the, the serpent of sin, that if we will simply look to the cross, we will be healed. We then get to chapter 22. And in chapter 22, which is what we looked at just last week, we saw that, that they had just overcome two more battles. After overcoming two more battles against the Amorites and Og, the king of Bashan, the, this, this giant that was in the land, and the Amorites, uh, Amorite means bitterness, they'd overcome bitterness and finally now they just... Their heart is to seek God's perfect will. And we met two new characters last week. One of them was by the name of Balaam, and one of them was by the name of Balak. Now, Balaam's name means devourer, and Balak's name means destroyer. And that's going to be significant in the text this evening. But Balaam's a really hard guy to figure out because this is a guy who's spoken of, as I mentioned last week, throughout the Bible. He's in, He's mentioned in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, Micah, Peter, Jude, and Revelation. And we see that he's mentioned throughout God's Word. He's mentioned more than Mary, the mother of Jesus. But he's also a guy that kind of like Saul, King Saul, it's hard to figure out if you don't look closely at him. Because... Like King Saul in some ways, King Saul was a man, if you remember, was filled with the Spirit, was anointed by God, but he rebelled against God and ended up consulting a witch. So too with Balaam. He was a man known for his success in, in divining power and being a sorcerer and cursing. And we know that in the, he would look into entrails to see the future, he'd look at stars and he would drop oil into a, a, a vat of water and look at the oil and, and tell the future from it. But at the same time, we see God speaking to him. And it's kind of baffling. You see this guy as a sorcerer, and yet God speaks to him. But again, I think we saw from last week that it's because God speaks through somebody, it does not mean they're called by God or anointed by God. Because remember last week, what did God use to speak to Balaam? A donkey. Remember the story? Balaam is this guy who really is out after the money. And we know that it says of him, don't go, it says in in God's word, don't go the way of Balaam or the error of Balaam, right? The doctrine of Balaam. Most of them are based on greed or, or as we're going to see later in a few chapters, sexual depravity. Balaam was a train wreck. Balaam was an ungodly man. But God still, because of his love for Israel, spoke to Balaam. For the sake of Israel, he spoke to him. But we saw last week that he was summoned by Balak because he knew that he could curse Israel. Balak had got up on the top of his mountain, and he was in Moab, and he looked down, and he saw this huge, massive army of Israel down at the foothills, and he said, we're in trouble. They just destroyed the Amorites. The Amorites already already whooped up on us. If these guys come our way, we're in big trouble. But instead of seeking God or turning to the Lord, what did he do? He turned to a sorcerer. Can I encourage you again, especially those of us who are Christians, may we never seek the counsel of men. Now, I don't mean was to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1 says. Now we do need counselors. There's wisdom in the counsel of many if it's godly counsel. But the authority for all counsel is the Bible. Amen? It's God's word. That's the authority. And what happens here is instead of, if he had just sent someone down to talk to the children of Israel, he would have found that the children of Israel had been commanded by God to leave the Moabites alone. Because they were cousins. They were descendants of Lot. And they were to be left alone. But instead of trying to find out what the truth was, he just wanted to curse them. And so he sends for Balaam, and God tells Balaam, you're not to go. God's perfect will, Balaam, you're not supposed to go. And Balaam says, okay, then I can't go. Well, then they come back with a bigger offer. You guys remember this from last week? And then what does Balaam say? Well, I really can't go. I'm not supposed to go. But uh, why don't you stay here overnight and let me pray about it? By the way, if God tells you something, you don't have to pray about it. Amen? And you don't have to pray about anything that's contrary to what's in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, that's it. You don't have to pray about it, think about it. You know, if someone comes to you and says, Hey man, I'd really love for you to come share with me about the love of Jesus. Well, let me pray about it. You don't have to do that, amen? And if someone tries to to do something sinful, you don't have to pray about that either. But Balaam prays and we know what happens. He submits, he goes with God's permissive will and he goes with him pursuing money. And God was angered with him. And as he's riding the donkey, if you remember the story from last week, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, is standing in front of him, holding a sword, ready to wipe him out. And what, what happens? The donkey keeps, like, running off the trail. Dude, I'm not going that way, right? And because he's so spiritually blind, the donkey can see what he can't see, right? And he starts whipping up on the donkey. And finally, the donkey turns around and looks at him and says, dude, what, are you blind? Do you see the guy? And the interesting part is he starts having a conversation with the donkey, which just blows me away. If a donkey starts talking, I'm stopping. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Did, am I okay? You know, I've been taking my temperature. I've been making sure I wasn't outside of my mind, right? And if a donkey's talking, I'm thinking you might want to figure out what is this all about. And instead, he's beating the donkey and he says he's looking for a sword to kill the donkey. Then finally, God opens his eyes and what does he see? He sees the Lord standing in front of him holding a sword. And he realizes finally that he's blown it. But the interesting part is... At that point, he said he would go home. The Lord said, go ahead. You were heading that direction, go ahead. But you speak the words, I speak to you. Now, we're going to see initially that Balaam's going to be obedient to that in this chapter. But as we get down the road, we're going to see that Balaam becomes a man whose focus is only his pocketbook. Whose focus is all about what money can I get, what fame can I get, what accolades can I get. And he's not really worried about what God has to say. And you know what? Again, we as Christians need to be careful because it's easy to fall into that same trap. You know, to make the mistake of getting our eyes on our circumstances. And so we saw last week that the key to knowing God's will was intimacy with the Lord, coming face to face with Him, trusting God's Word, being obedient before God. And again, Balaam failed in all those areas. So that brings us to chapter 23. And the reason I bring all this up is we've seen in the last few weeks what it means to walk in the center of God's will. We've seen them right there at getting ready to enter into the land of promise so tonight, what we're going to see is we're going to see a spiritual battle behind the scenes. We're going to see what a spiritual battle looks like. In Ephesians six, it says, "For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." We're going to clearly witness again what's going on in the heavenlies, even as we speak. You guys, I know that we can get out of, we can get carried away with it. And some people have a demon of everything. And, you know, the devil's resources are limited, but he's real. Amen? He's a defeated foe, and we do not battle with flesh and blood. And we can go all throughout the Bible and see, like, even when Daniel was praying, how it took the angel a great deal of time to get to him because he was fighting a battle trying to come to Daniel to reveal to him that his prayer had been answered. We do battle. There is a spiritual battle going on all around us. There's places in God's Word where He opens up the eyes of the saints and they see chariots and horses and they finally realize that they're not alone. And we need to understand that. But at the same time, we need to, have to make the extreme where I've had people call me up and they need to be delivered from the demon of chocolate. I'm like, no, you don't. Just quit eating candy bars, man. That ain't no demon. Quit blaming that on the devil. That's just plain stinking your sweet tooth. Amen. And too often, we got demons of everything. It's demon of my, you know, the demons in my carburetor. That's why it's not working. There's a demon of the... Oh, stop it, okay? But we do have a spiritual battle that we live in. There is a spiritual warfare that's going on. And so tonight, as we look at these two guys again, let me remind you of their names. Balak, which means destroyer, and Balaam, which means devourer. And it's interesting that Balak, this destroyer, rather than seeking and approaching God's people to learn truth, instead he turns to a sorcerer. He turns to a devourer. Now when you think of their two names, think about this for a second. Balaam means devourer. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. And the word for Balak means destroyer. And the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy and that's another reference to satan so isn't it interesting that one's name means devourer the other one's name means destroyer and as we're going to see tonight this is a picture of a spiritual battle that's going on as the children of israel and and what's interesting about this watch this children of israel are oblivious if any of this is even happening They're marching toward the land of promise. They're encamped in the cross, right? They're living in the tents. They're they're marching according to God's marching orders. The new generation's been ushered in. They're winning some battles, finally, right? Because they're being obedient to the Lord. And the, the Shekinah glory of God is leading them through the wilderness. And they're headed to the land of promise. And they're totally oblivious to what's going on with Balaam and Balak. Much like many of us as Christians, we're living in these temporary tents we're headed to the land of promise, the Holy Spirit's living inside of us, we're moving in that direction and we're totally oblivious often to what's going on all around us spiritually. And again, this is a clear picture for us. So we're going to see two prophecies tonight. The first one's going to be a picture of Israel, God's chosen people. And based upon God's love, we're going to see that they're blessed, they're set apart, and they ho- have the hope of heaven. And then we're going to see the second prophecy, that they're not just a chosen people, but they're God's conquering people. And it's based on the faithfulness of God. We're going to see that God doesn't lie and God doesn't change His mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's begin in verse 1. And we're going to look at Israel, God's chosen people. And we're going to see this spiritual battle that's going on. And remember where they're at. They're out in the middle of the desert, but they're right at the, right at the, the foothills of entering into the land of promise. They've defeated A couple of the enemies already, they're moving in the right direction, they're being obedient to God, they're winning the victory, and in the midst of all that, without even their knowledge, up on top of this mountain, is Balak and Balaam looking down upon them. And again, a picture of what goes on all around us, all the time. Let's go back to verse 41 of chapter 22. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, And from there he might observe the extent of the people. So this is actually the beginning of this first prophecy. And he takes him up. Now remember that he compromised. He wasn't walking in God's perfect will. He was walking in His permissive will. And where does he end up? Baal is what? What is Baal? A false what? A false god. And he's a god of sexual depravity. He's a god of the sun. They used to sacrifice their children to this god. And they go up on these high places because they were pagans. They believed that if you got up on a mountain, you were closer to God somehow. They thought that, you know, altitude equated to a closer walk with God. If that were true, we'd all be living in Denver, right? But the reality is that we can have a close, intimate relationship with God wherever we are. But the pagans didn't understand that. So he brings them up onto this mountain. Oh, and they and they get in this place where where idol worship took place, and God had told them not to go with them. But again, where does he end up? He ends up on top of this mountain because he missed God and didn't heed his counsel. And so he's up there, and he says he wants him to observe the extent of the people. Now remember this: the Israelites are as many as two to three million people, and so they're looking down. They see two million people, and he wants them to see all the people in the wilderness. To look down upon them and realize what enemy they were facing. But I want you to notice one thing really important. When he looked down, what did he see? The cross. When he looked down and saw the extent of the people, the four tribes, encamped the way that God had instructed them to, what he saw was the cross. And it's interesting that when Balak and Balaam saw the cross, they wanted to curse it. Because you know what? The cross of Christ is a stone of offense. And that's what it is. It's either a place of repentance and restoration or it's a place where people are, don't want to hear about it. Get that cross down. I don't want to see it. It convicts me of my sin. There's nothing new under the sun. Even prior to Christ coming, we see that they see the cross and they want to quiet it. Verse 1. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. So here we have devourer and destroyer coming together And again, they've looked down upon the cross, instead of a place of repentance, they they have seven altars and they're going to make sacrifices. Now let me ask you a question, do you see anywhere ever in the Bible where they make seven sacrifices all at the same time on seven altars to, to Jehovah? The answer is no. It's always one at a time. Why? Because there's only one sacrifice that paid the price. Now, they would have a burnt offering and sometimes right after that a peace offering, but it was always one at a time. But they've got seven, and they're burning them all at the same time. Now, it's believed that because Baal, was, they considered him the sun god, that the seven altars represented the seven known planets at the time. And so they were worshiping Baal. Here he is. Now, who did he just run into on the road? Who did he just see face to face? Jesus. He saw the Lord face to face, and he runs off, and he starts worshiping the sun god and starts offering you know, know, burning these, these animals, making sacrifices to the false gods. And, you know, you look at that and you think, man, is this guy thick or what? But at the same time, you know what? Don't we do that sometimes? God rescues us, God's faithful, He delivers us, and then we run right off and go right back into our old way of life. We have a head-on collision with Christ, we're walking with Him, we go on a retreat, or, you know, we're, you know, God just brings us to weeping, and we come home, and it's like, well, that weekend's over. Go right back to what I was doing before, that same old struggle. Well, that's what Balaam does. He sees Christ, but it doesn't impact his life, and the same can be true of us, and we need to make sure that we don't just know about God, we have an intimate personal relationship with God, your best friend, Amen? And so we see here that they go up on the the mountain, they look down and they burn these these sacrifices on these seven altars. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So you got 14 animals on fire being offered up to the sun god. And again, offerings made not from broken, repentant hearts seeking restoration from God, but from a heart that is seeking to earn God's approval. Now I do believe that because he didn't fully grasp what was going on, that part of him thought that this would be pleasing to the God of Israel too. You know, this is what we do when we sacrifice to God, so we're just going to offer this stuff up, and yeah, that's, you know, Baal, Jehovah, what's the difference? And sadly, that's, that's true in the world today. We don't d- differentiate between the true and living God and the, the dead idols of the world. And if you do, you're not being politically correct. Amen? You start telling people Jesus is the only way, Dude, man, you're narrow, man. You need to relax. You need to lighten up. Uh, Jesus is the only way. Amen? Amen. Muhammad's dead. Buddha's dead. They're all dead. Jesus risen and living Savior. And and we need to point people to the truth and the hope that lies within us. And so we see them offering up this pagan worship. And again, often this would include even the the, uh, slaughter of innocent children. But not in this case. So they offer these animals up. Now remember again, That without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin, but it must be blood that is shed that points to Christ. Because any other blood that is shed is of no meaning. Verse 3, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went out to a desolate height. Now it's interesting that he tells Balak to stand by the offering so that somehow he could earn the favor of having made this offering. What are they trying to do? Are they, again, are they repentant and broken? Are they trying to be restored to a right relationship before God? Or are they trying to somehow do something that will get God's attention and somehow God will give them some favor? You know, get God to owe me a little bit. You know, Lord, let me stand in the midst of these seven altars. Look what I've done for you. Look at all that I've sacrificed for you, Lord. And again, that we can fall into that trap as well of thinking that we work real hard so that God will owe us a favor. You know, if I go to church a lot, you know, if I read my Bible and put some Christian stickers on my car, then God's going to owe me big, right? Down the road, I'm going to cash that chip in, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. Balak's standing among the, you know, the the, the, you know, the animals, sacrifices going up, the smoke's going up, and he's standing right in the middle of them like, pretty sweet, huh, God? What do you think? Got seven altars working here, 14 dead animals. It's smelling pretty good up there in heaven, right? Now, kick, kick your brother down a favor, right? Now, the reality is, is what is Balak asking him to do? To curse whom? The children of Israel, which are God's kids. And we talked about this last week. Can you imagine coming up to me and, you know, and slipping me a hundred bucks and telling me, go out and beat, beat one of my kids senseless? Here's a hundred bucks, go smack your kid around for me. What are you, dude, what are you talking about? This is what Balak's doing. He's saying, curse your children, God. I want you to curse your kids for my sake because I'm burning some animals to you. It's foolishness. But we see what happens when we don't have an understanding of who God truly is. We think we earn favor by our good works. We think we earn favor by making sacrifices, crawling on glass to Mecca. And sadly, Balaam, fresh from his face to face with Jesus, still doesn't get it. But the only word that I speak to you, he says, you shall speak. So Balaam says, I'm going to go to this high, desolate height. Again, pagan. Because what did the pagans believe? The higher you got up, the closer you got to God. The high places again. So he goes up into this high place to meet the Lord there. He still doesn't fully grasp who our Savior is. He met Him on the road, but again, he's just as likely to take entrails out and look at Him as he is to call on the true and living God. But Jesus, again, is the way, the truth, and the life. And in this case, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God. Now this is amazing though, but look what it says in verse 4. And God met Balaam. So he's burning these animals on a high place where they, they make sacrifices to Baal and God still speaks to him. But you know what? What does this show us? This shows us the grace of God in ministering on behalf of Israel and even in reaching out to Balaam to reveal truth to him. You know, I've met people that have gone, got caught up in a cult, or caught up in something, and they meet God there. They go caught up in some weird, bizarre thing, and and before you know it, they're like, you know what, there really is a God, and and God delivers them out of it, and they put their eyes on the true and living God. Because God is a loving, a gracious, and a merciful God. And He reaches down to Balaam, even, even as He's making sacrifices to false gods. Now we might look at that and think, wow, that's pretty incredible, but at the same time, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, amen? God didn't come to us when we got it all together. I'm all perfect, it's all good. Maybe you weren't burning, you know, and sacrificing animals to false gods, but you were living in your will, living according to your way. And you were sacrificing to something, and you had idols you were serving, because you, you got to serve somebody, right? It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, we're all serving somebody, as Bob Dylan once sang, right? And so we're all serving somebody, and so we're all serving a false god when God comes to us and opens our eyes to His truth, and we have an opportunity to respond. So God speaks to Balaam, and here's what He says to him. And He said to him, I have prepared, this is Balaam speaking to God, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said to him, return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So God delivers a word just as he had told him when the donkey spoke to him. He said, you know what? I want you to go ahead and go, but you speak only what I speak to you. I'll tell you, that's some great counsel. Amen? Let's only speak what God speaks to us. You know, my opinion's pretty stinking irrelevant, and it's not going to be much help to anybody. Amen? That's why it's so key that we know this book, because when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he always res- how did he always respond to Satan? It is written. That'd be, boy, can you imagine if we just did that for a couple weeks? Before he said anything, you got to say, it is written, right? Boy, our vocabulary, would dry, we just wouldn't be saying much, right? But Can you imagine at work if all you could do is say, is, it, it is written? Boy, will we be witnessing, right? And we'd be pointing people to the truth. And so we see here that God delivers truth to him. And he puts it into his mouth. And he can go now and minister to, to Balak and share truth with Balak, even though his motives are all wrong. They're seeking through their wicked designs to bring harm and cursing to God's people. But we're going to see again that God is in control. Even though these guys have their own motives, they can't do anything God, unless God lets them. And I want you to encourage you with something, guys. You know, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of anything. And we don't have to worry about anything. And we don't have to be anxious about anything. Now, we may struggle with those things on occasion. And even, you know, if you do, it doesn't mean you're not saved, Okay. But I want to say this, as we're walking with the Lord and we've got our eyes on Him, we should realize that because of His sovereignty, we can be at peace. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God knows what's going on. God didn't get shocked. God didn't fall asleep and something happened in your life. God knew it was coming. And we can grow through it if we will simply allow Him. So He returned to him, verse 6, and there He was standing by the burnt offering, He and all the princes of Moab. So here He is really trying to get God's favor. Now I believe very clearly that Balak would have teamed up with anybody if he could have got what he wanted. He would have teamed up with any God that came out, it would have made any difference, give me a God that will curse those people and keep them from harming me, and I'll be on your side. Whatever it takes. I'll sell my soul to rock and roll, right? I'll sell my soul to whatever God comes along, I'll give you my whole heart, I'll do it all, but just curse those people for me. And too often we're looking for a God who will do what we want. You know, God, you give me what I want, and then I'll follow you. You know, I know what I want for my life, and you're, you know, if you come through, then I'll start serving you. You know, that's the ultimate blasphemy, when people start telling God what He must do before they will follow Him. What has God done? Everything. He created you. He suffered and died that you might have eternal life. You don't put conditions on God. God's done enough. And so we see here that Balak, this wicked and selfish man, would have willingly done anything to destroy the children of Israel. He draws all of his own guys in together and they're standing there amongst the burnt offering just waiting for, for Balaam to come back and give them the word they've been waiting for. We've got to get those guys. We're overwhelmed. They're not seeking God. They're seeking a solution, a physical solution for themselves. You know, it says in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. It's not about how religious we are that pleases God. It's about how we love Him so much that we desire to obey Him with our whole hearts and put Him first in our lives. And Balak is the furthest thing away from that. And so he took up his oracle, or parable if you will, or prophetic speech, and said, now this is Balaam speaking, the words that God has given him. And he begins to speak to Balak. Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, From the mountains of the east, come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. So again, Balak the destroyer sought the cursing and destruction of Israel. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen? What's the most volatile piece of dirt on this planet? Where is it? It's Israel. And it's nothing new. And back then, they wanted to destroy Israel. And today, the whole Middle East wants to destroy Israel. There's countries all around them that if God ever let go for a nanosecond would wipe them off the face of the earth. But God is in control. Even though Israel right now is in rebellion against Him, He still loves them and has a plan for them. And so He says, here's your plan. Here's what your heart was, Balak. But look at verse 8. How should I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? God has especially blessed His children. And no one, no power, no principality, no evil force of darkness, no king, no government, no spell, no incantation, no law can do anything to his children unless God allows it. Amen? They can have all the people in the world wanting to curse you. Do we have to be afraid if someone wants to cast a spell on you? Absolutely not. I had a a psychic one time. I may have told you the story. When I was sold Yellow Pages, whenever I'd get a psychic assigned to me or an adult entertainer, whatever, I'd just throw them in the trash and take them out of the phone book and deal with the consequences six months later when they opened up their ad was out of the Yellow Pages. Abortion clinic, you're not in the phone book anymore. Just take them all out. <laughs> I took one doctor one time, spent $10,000 a month, took her out of the phone book completely. Didn't even list her in the white pit, nothing, out. Took her out of 411, everything, gone. <laughs> Calls up one day, what happened to my ad? I'm like, I don't know, what and I looked at it, up, oh, you, you did abortions, oh, we can't be having that. I got in a little trouble. It's all right. But here's the reality. So I, I had this, I had these psychics and the, I used to always throw them in the trash. And then one day I had these two psychics assigned to me in the San Jose campaign and God put it on my heart. If you don't go tell them about me, who's going to? And I'm Lord, is that what you want? So I prayed about it for a couple days. and I said, all right, you know, I'm going to go call on these folks. So I went into the first psychic and I walked into the building and, you know, they got all this weird claws and stuff hanging from the I'm no, like this is weak so I walk in there I walk in there and I'm praying for the lady out in the parking lot and as soon as I walk in the door she looks at me and she says you have two jobs this job and another job and the other job is the passion of your life and you really don't want to be here talking to me right now I said that's absolutely correct everything you just said I said you know what I know about what you just said also one of two things about psychics one they're either liars and phonies or they get their information from the devil so since you were on target, I know which one you are, right? That went over real well, okay? So she was mad at me and was talking about how, you know, she was going to like be speaking against me and I'm like, hey, my best friend created the universe. I don't got to sweat you, all right? It's okay. They assigned her to another rep that all worked out. Now I did go, just to make a long story short, I went to saw, the, I went and saw the other psychic and she got saved. It was totally God. She started going to Calvary San Jose and she forwarded her her phone number for the psychic hotline that she had in the yellow pages to Calvary San Jose. So every time somebody tried to call a psychic, it landed at Calvary San Jose and people were sharing Jesus with them. It was awesome. So it was totally the Lord. Amen. It was totally the Lord. But here's the good news, guys. The lady's going, oh, I'm going to, you know, yeah, whatever. Okay. My God is greater than that. Amen. And we get all bent out of shape and we we forget that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so we see here Balak and Balaam, you know, they want to curse God's people, but God is in control. And you can't do anything unless the Lord allows it. He allowed it with Job, didn't he? Didn't he allow it with Job? And he allowed it with Job that Job might grow and that God might be glorified. So if, it, if something like that happens in your life, it's an opportunity for you to grow and God to be glorified. And so say, okay, Lord, you knew. It went through your hands before it got to me. Lord, you're in, you're in charge, you're in control, I trust you. And so he says to them, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? This is good counsel for us. Guys, we should not be speaking bad about that which God has not spoken bad about. Prayer praise is one of my favorite statements. If you can't say something nice, pray for him. If you can't be the one, then shut up, all right? As a youth pastor for years. Prayer praise, right? You start bagging on somebody, prayer praise. Let's be an encouragement. And so we see here in verse 9, from the tops of the rocks, I see him. And from the hills I behold them. there are people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. So they're standing on top of the rocks, this high places of Baal, and they're looking down upon the children of Israel. And as they're looking down the children of Israel, what do they find out about them? They say there are people dwelling alone, not reckoning, reckoning itself among the nations. Can I tell you that this is the example for us as the children of God today? They're looking down, and what do they see They see that Israel is set apart. That Israel is not intermixed with other tribes and other peoples, but Israel is following God. And you know what? The church today, God is sovereign, God is faithful, but He's called us to be set apart. A people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among other nations. You know, we're not to be sitting ducks but set apart to God. In the world, but not of the world. Israel's greatest downfalls came when they became like other nations instead of rejoicing in their uniqueness as the people of the true and living God and being salt and light. They imitated their neighbors in their worship and their conduct and God had to discipline them. Instead of letting God be true, their true king, remember what happened? Why did they cry out for a king? Because everybody else had a king, amen? Because all, everybody else has got a king, we got to have a king. We've got to be like the world. But when they look down from the rocks and they're crying out to God, what do they look down and see? They see a country, a nation that is set apart. They're not just blessed by God, but they're set apart by God. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're an example to the world of God's love and His grace and His mercy. When they cried out for a king, they're choosing a king over God. Unfortunately, many people in the church today have mistaken the idea that being like the world is a way to reach the world. Let me tell you, it's exactly the opposite. There's all this stuff going around today that, well, we need to be all things, that, now we do need to be all things, all men to win some, right? But I've heard things like, well, if your friends like to go to strip club, then go with them so you can witness to them. Uh, give me a scripture for that, right? If your friends like to drink and party, go drink and party with them. You've got to be like the world so you can witness. Were they attracted to Christ because he was like everyone else? They're attracted to Jesus because He's God and He's perfect and He's holy. And Christian means little Christ. Christ is living in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're to be salt and light, not like the world. In the world, but not of the world. They forgot that the church is the people of God, a very special people, saved by grace. Instead of maintaining separation, they they promote imitation. As a result, it's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish, distinguish between the people of God and the people of the world. Isn't that true? Our music sounds like their music. The way we dress, the way we talk, the the movies we watch, the hobbies we participate in, we're just going with the flow and being just like the world. But as he looked down on God's people, as they're entering into the land of promise, what did he saw? He saw a set apart nation. God's called us, again, not to be self-righteous, not to be arrogant or holier than now, but to be in the world and not of the world. Not imitators of the world. Not like the world. People should look at Christians and say, you guys are different. Amen? You guys are radically different. Whoa! Instead of, you know, I just want to know about your God because, dude, you're just like me. Well, if I'm just like you, why would you want to know my God because you're desperate and hopeless without Him? Amen? They should look and see that we have joy when they don't. We have passion when they can't. That we have peace when when it doesn't make sense to them. We're to be in the world but not of the world. It's been said that the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. I believe that. The church did most for the world when the church was least like the world, attracted to Jesus, not because he was like them, but because he was different. And so they were blessed and they were set apart. And we are called to be, we're blessed by God and we're called to be set apart. Verse 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my end be like his. Who can count the dust of Jacob? It's interesting that there was a prophecy given to Abraham that his descendants would be like what? The, the sand of the earth, the dust of the earth. Fulfillment of that prophecy. And we see here also, not only this fulfillment, but, but he says, what, you can't even number one-fourth. Remember they were divided in four different camps. And he looked down and saw one camp, he was overwhelmed. He embledied not only their blessing, but also the promise of heaven that they had to come. He said, I want to die like they do. You know what? People should envy the way we live, but people should also be able to envy even the way we die. Amen? Christians die well. Why? As we said on Sunday, it's moving day. Amen? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's a joy. Can I tell you, I look forward to it. I don't fear death one bit. I'm excited. Absent from the body, I'm going to be in His presence. I'm not going to be dragging this dead carcass around anymore. Those of you on the softball team, I'm having wheels in heaven, okay? all right it's an inside joke all right i'm slow i look like i'm carrying a refrigerator down here all right but here's the reality that we're going to be new creations in christ and as christians we should we they should see the way that we live is different but even the way that we prepare for eternity and we see here the balaam sees it, and he says in this verse here let me die the death of the righteous let my end be like his they, they, they have something that's missing from my life they have peace when things are haywire things are sideways I want to be like them. May we be set apart from the world. And may, again, we be different. For a believer, death has no sting. It's graduation day. And I'm looking forward to it. Verse 11 and 12. Then Balak said to Balaam, Why have you done this to me? What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and you blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not Must I not take heed to speak with the Lord what the Lord has put in my mouth? So he says, I called you down here to curse him, and instead you came down here and blessed him. And then Balaam turns and says to him, I've got to speak what God tells me to speak. Again, God is, Balaam's being faithful to what he had promised the Lord. He's still not a man of God, though. He does speak the truth in this case. And again, I believe it's to to reach out to Balaam and also to reach out to the children of Israel, protect them. So the first prophecy is Israel is God's chosen people. That they're blessed, they're set apart, they have the promise of heaven. Now lastly, we're going to look at this second prophecy. Israel, God's conquering people based on the faithfulness of God. We can trust in His Word. God only needs to tell us something once and we can believe Him, amen? They don't have to tell us five times. Look at verse 13. Then Balak said to Him, Please come to Me, to another place from which you may see them. You shall see the, only the outer part of them, and shall not see them all. Curse them for Me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim at the top of Pisgah and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Isn't this just like the world? He goes up and God says, these are my children and no, you cannot curse them. And he says, okay, let's try another tact to do the same exact thing. Let's go around to the other side that's coming from another direction. And maybe if you only see part of them, you don't see the full cross. Maybe then you can curse them. Now, it's interesting that he brings them up, and the place here is Pisgah, is interesting. It means fortress. And it's the same exact place where Moses stood and looked into the land of promise before he died. So that means when Balak and Balaam were standing there, they looked down and saw the children of Israel in in the desert, and they could also see the land of promise at the same time. And they looked down, and he wanted to curse them as they were heading into the land of promise. This is the picture of the spiritual battle I was talking to you about. What is Satan doing right now? He's looking and he sees that we're headed to the land of promise. He's seen into heaven, right? Hasn't Satan been? He's been in heaven, right? He's seen into heaven. He knows what it looks like. He sees us as we're encamped in the cross and we're headed to the land of promise. And what does he want to do? He wants to curse us on this land. But the good news is that God is in control, not Satan. Amen? And he is a defeated foe. And he can look down upon us and curse us all he wants, but if God doesn't allow it, no harm can come to me. And any harm that does come to me is going to be for God's glory and my spiritual growth, so bring it on. Amen? Should make us just say, charge. And here's that picture: of Balak, devourer. Balaam, or Balaam, devourer. Balak, destroyer. Looking down on the children, looking into the land of promise, and wanting to curse them yet again, and building these altars to these false gods that have done him no good but they continue to cry out to these false gods. Verse 15. And he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. So here we go again. They're doing the same exact thing. Asking God again to do something that God's not going to do. Verse 16. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to him and there was standing by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab were with him and Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken to you? Isn't it interesting that they try the exact same approach to try to change God's mind? How many of you have ever done that? Raise your hand. Thou shalt not bear false witness, right? You pray and ask God to do something, and God—it's not—but God, you just pray again. Well, maybe you forgot that I asked last week. I'm going to ask him one more time, right? He shows you in His Word it's contrary to His will, and sometimes we think that God's a holy Santa Claus up in the sky, and if we just pound on Him long enough, He'll just give it to us to shut us up, right? That's not our God. Am I going to give my kids a 14-inch a, you know, knife to shut them up? Can I please have that dagger to play with? No, you can't. You can ask me till the cows come home. I'm never giving that to you because it will harm you. Amen? Our God loves us enough that he will not give us that which will harm us. If we come to him, he's only going to give us that which will bless us and minister to us. So they ask God again. And, they, and again, they're not repenting. They're seeking in their own will. Now watch this. We're almost done. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, in here. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Man, I love this. And as Christians, we ought to know this. God does not need to change his mind. Amen? He doesn't need to repent. When God says it once, that's enough. Amen? And too often we think we've got to keep cluing God in, and maybe he's going to change his mind about this. Maybe it's going to be a little different. No, it's not. If he he changed his mind, that would mean at some point he was wrong, and God is never wrong, and he can't be wrong. Amen? And so he says here, look, God has told you, and he's not going to change his mind. So get in line with God. God's not going to change his mind about you living with your girlfriend. All right? So don't do it. God is not going to change His mind about you doing drugs. God's not going to change His mind about you drinking and partying. God's not going to change His mind about other paths into heaven. God has said it once and that's enough. And again, sadly, we see here that they're crying out. God gives us His word once. That should be sufficient. Verse 20. Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot reverse it. Balaam could not act toward God's people contrary to God's will. No man can act toward you contrary to God's will. So it's God's will that I get in a car accident sometimes? Yeah. Because it's an opportunity for God to be glorified and you to grow spiritually. Amen? God allows us to go, counter all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, because that's how we grow. Too often we look at a trial as punishment from God. And again, sin has consequences, and sometimes we go out and sin, and we reap the consequences of sin. But also, we can walk in obedience to the Lord, and God will bring things into our life that will cause us to grow spiritually. Verse twenty one. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God has not seen sin in Israel. Wait a minute. Have we been? Re- has he read the chapter? Has he- What have these people been doing the whole time they've been wandering in the wilderness? Moaning, murmuring, complaining, whining, cursing God, wanting to overthrow Moses. And he says, I see no sin in Israel. I observe no iniquity in Jacob. How is that possible? Because they're encamped in the what? In the cross. Because when he looked down from heaven, what did he see? He saw the cross. He saw the foreshadowing of Jesus' blood that was to come. When He looks at you and He looks at me, you know what He sees? He sees us sinless, forgiven, perfect, holy. What an awesome God we serve. Not because of our good works, but because of His good work. And He looks down on the children of Israel encamped in the cross. Though they've been rebellious, they're forgiven. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Who delivered them out of bondage? The Lord did. The Lord did. Who delivered you out of the bondage of sin? The Lord did. Verse 23. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It, is, it now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. What is he saying here? That no matter what happens, we must attribute it to God because sorcerers and spells cannot enchant against God's people Fortune tellers cannot do anything against God's people because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world and no enemy can touch you unless God allows it. Isn't there a peace in that? We should just, hey, it's all good because God is faithful and I'm in his hands and no one can snatch me out of his hand and nobody can do anything to me unless he allows it and if he allows it, it's going to be for his glory and my growth spiritually. Verse 24. Look, A people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of the slain. It's interesting that now he turns this picture of a lion and attributes it to Israel, who now walking in obedience will defeat every foe before it. You know, there's not one place in God's word where God's people, children of Israel, are obedient and they're defeated. When they're obedient, God blesses them. When they go outside of God's will, they can be defeated. If we walk in obedience to the will of God, anything that comes to us will be again for His glory. Last two verses. We're going to stop at 26. Verse 25. Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. So Balaam answered and said, Did I not tell you, saying all the Lord speaks? That I must do. Here's the king, Balak, the destroyer, a type or a picture of Satan. And he turns to him and says, Don't speak... If you won't curse him then don't bless him. And he says to him what the Lord speaks that I must do. Your words are powerless. Your thoughts, your desires, your heart meaningless because God is in control. The same can be said of Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. And you know what? If God, he only has that freedom which God allows him to have. Now, are there unbelievers that pursue Satan? What's the answer? Absolutely. And you know what? They're going to give themselves over to Him. But as believers in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. By the way, let me just make this real clear. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Amen? Impossible. Because God's not sharing His temple with anybody. And the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, a demon? No, demon? No, sorry. Guys, we're, we're victorious. We're walking in Christ. And we need to understand that clearly. Oh, with Santa Cruz is a dark county. Yeah, it is. The place needs Jesus. But I don't care how dark the county its It can't do anything to me unless God allows it. Amen? We need to learn to walk in victory and have peace and know that God is faithful and that God is in control. God turned cursing into blessing. They wanted to curse Israel. And how does it end up? They're being blessed. There might be those that, want, that the enemy wants to attack you, but God is in control. Jesus would later say, Blessed, or oh, how happy are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. So in review, and I, I stop there because chapter, verse 27 begins the third prophecy and the fourth prophecy that we'll see next week. So God's supernatural protection. Why are we protected? How can we know that we're protected? One, because God is in control. Amen? We use that word, we throw it out a lot, but it means He's in control. Is He in control at your work? Does He know who your boss is? Does He know about that neighbor that's a pain that lives next door? You know, all the stuff that you're going through, All that you know, does He know about your frailties? Does He know about the illness that you have? He knows about everything, and He's in control, and we need to trust Him in the midst of it. Greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. Satan, the demons, can do nothing to you or to me unless God allows it. Then it will be again for His glory and for your growth. So the first prophecy, God's chosen people, based on God's love, they're blessed, they're set apart, and they have the promise of heaven. Guess what? We're God's kids. We're blessed. We're set apart and we have the promise of heaven. Amen? We're going to heaven. It's not a hope so, it's a no so. I know that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I'm going. Amen? Not because of my good works, but because of His great work. And then lastly, the second prophecy is God's conquering of and, and, he, and God made them a conquering people based on the faithfulness of God. God doesn't lie. We can trust in every promise He's made. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I are encamped in the cross and dwelt by the Spirit. We can walk in victory and know that heaven is to come. When He looks down, we're encamped in the cross, the temporary tent. But we've been born again. The Holy Spirit's living inside of us. We're headed to the land of promise. And I can't wait to get there. But even until that moment comes, nothing will happen to us unless God allows it. What a peace there is to know who's in control. What a peace there is in the coming election to know that no matter who they vote for, they can't vote God out of office. Amen? No matter what happens at work, no matter what happens with your finances, no matter what happens with your health, God loves you. He knows what's best for you. He's in control and He's faithful. You can trust Him. That should get rid of all the fear, all the anxiety, all the worry, all this, you know, again, there's a spiritual battle going on around us and we need to understand that. But understand above all of that that God is in control. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your promises. We thank you that we are blessed and we have been set apart and we have the promise of heaven. We thank you that we can trust in your character, who you are as our God, that you don't lie that you don't change your mind, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we can trust in you in the midst of the most difficult time because we know it's according to your perfect will. Help us, Lord, to, to seek you in the midst of difficulty. Help us not to be like Balak, seeking to curse our enemy, but, Lord, that we would pray for our enemy. Lord, that we would seek your will and seek your face and, and realize, Lord, again, that all that happens in our life is there for a reason. It's an opportunity for us to grow and for you to be glorified. Lord, I just pray that this week you would bring those divine appointments, Lord, and we would see them for what they are. We ask these things in your holy and you're holding your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close a worship song.